Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Andrew Thompson. He's a professor of parasitology at Murdoch University in Australia. Uh, He's gotten up at an ungodly hour to do this interview, so I I appreciate that very much. Andrew, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Yeah. Tell me about um, what what spurred your interest in parasites, uh, you know, a long time ago, whenever you started working with them. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Well, basically, my training initially was as a zoologist. And um, I it, it came down to basically my um, my teachers and uh, my teacher in invertebrate zoology um, came up with a list of projects that we had to do for our honours in our final year. And there was one project that particularly um, caught my attention and interest, which concerned... Um, studying a tapeworm, a very tiny little tapeworm in mice. It had a two-host life cycle. The other life cycle, the other um, part of the life cycle is a tiny little beetle. And um, its common name is the dwarf tapeworm, or Hymenolepis nana, to give us its grand name. And yeah, I did a project on this tapeworm, living in mice, and uh, learned more about its natural history. And I've never looked back. So what's the... uh... What's the tapeworm of the month for you, or the parasite of the month? Which one are you looking at right now? Oh, that was a long time ago. I've moved on from um, that particular parasite now. Now, over the years, I've worked on um, a large number of parasites, not just um, uh, tapeworms. Scientifically, they're referred to as cestodes, but also single-celled parasites, um, um, things like Giardia or Giardia that you may well have heard of or even have been infected with. Um, but mainly, that I comes from, common, uh, like water sources, right? That can be infected with. with uh, it with it can be, and particularly in North America, that's um, where it's got a particularly bad reputation. Um, but I suppose the common theme is, has been, and is parasites that can be shared between um, humans and other animals. And um, the term for those parasites are called zoo. Are they called zoonoses? And that name means that can be um, transmission between the two. Oh, so just like viruses can be zoonotic, I guess parasites can be too, right? Oh, absolutely. It's just that um, there's a separate discipline for viruses, virology, for bacteria, bacteriology. And then there's this huge group of organisms from single cell things like malaria all the way through to multicellular organisms like tapeworms and ticks and so on that come under the umbrella of parasitology. Okay, well, very good. Yeah, it's funny, as you were talking, I imagine you having a calendar on the wall with like Parasite of the Month, you know, when I said it. <laughs> I wonder if, if anyone would like that, you know, as a gift. Each month there's a big picture of a new parasite and a brief description of it. And I guess only parasitologists probably would. But. Yeah, yeah, probably. I suppose nowadays with um, the great sort of imaging techniques that we have, you do get some amazing pictures of, of parasites. And some of them can look really awesome and quite cute sometimes, depending which ones you're looking at. Yeah. 
So what's your current um, focus? Which uh, parasite are you working on right now? I suppose um, in recent years, we've um, been concentrating on parasites of wildlife, um, particularly those that may have um, conservation um, effects, i.e. may health affect the health of wildlife. And again, parasites that um, normally don't really cause much of a problem in wildlife, but as in many cases, human involvement, either by affecting the environment or creating conditions um, where parasites can spread um, or introducing new parasites to which wildlife is susceptible, those things have been interesting as to a great degree. Oh, what, what kind of parasites and which wildlife interest you? Well, I'll give you, give you a few examples. Um, I don't know whether you've heard of hydatid disease. No, I haven't. It, it occurs in North America and throughout the world. It's um, a cystic infection. Again, it's um, in the adult stage. It's a small tapeworm. Um, and the larval stage is a cyst that manifests itself. Um, large cysts up to the size of um, tennis balls or even bigger in the internal organisms of the other host. And it's two host life cycle carnivores that harbour the small adult tapeworm, and then a whole variety of omnivorous um, or herbivorous animals that can harbour the um, cystic stage. And basically, in order for the cycle to continue, the carnivore has to eat the cystic stage. So you can imagine a natural cycle, as you have in North America, between wolves and moose, for example, moose with the, um, the cysts, and wolves, the predator, eating the cysts in the moose. And that's probably the best-known natural cycle that occurs in the wild. Um, but because of man's involvement in various parts of the world, the parasite has become, in inverted commas, domesticated. So it's very common in um, where you have livestock, such as sheep and um, dogs, dogs eating the cysts from the sheep, usually because of human involvement. Um, humans doing um, slaughtering the sheep. Um, farmers, for example, may be slaughtering a few sheep at home for their own use, and the dogs get into the offal from the slaughtered sheep, and the life cycle is completed. And that's the most common way throughout the world. Middle East, Europe, North America, this man-made domestic cycle. But it also oh. can get in into, into wildlife. I mentioned the natural cycle between wolves and um, moose or other large deer. Um, but in Australia, for example, hydatid disease never existed in Australia before um, settlers arrived. They brought their sheep and their dogs, and they started a cycle between sheep and dogs. And the dogs, infected with a tapeworm, contaminated the environment, which was um, shared by other grazing animals, kangaroos and wallabies. And they became infected with this hydatid parasite. Um, so they were completely naive host. The parasite in the wallabies affects the lungs and grows to be sometimes quite big, affects the um, exercise performance of the, the wallabies and the kangaroos, so they become easier prey to animals like dingoes. So humans unwittingly in the early days of settlement established this, what had become a domestic cycle, into a novel wildlife cycle in the Australian environment. And now Australia cannot eradicate um, hydatid disease because in order to eradicate it, we'd have to shoot all the dingoes and all the, um, the, the macropod marsupials. So that's a good, really good example of a, 
a parasite in wildlife that was um, introduced by humans. I have many more. So what, what, <laughs> what do you, um, where's your focus within the parasite world? Are you trying to figure out how to stop them or simply to understand them and all the complexity of their behavior? Well, initially, one, I mean, the end goal is to, con- is to control it in some way. Um, initially, you have to understand it. So the initial studies with that, um, when we found these cysts in kangaroos, for example, and wallabies, um, we had to try and determine, was this here before um, settlement? Has it always been in Australia? So to compare the, the parasites, i.e. the ones in the macropod marsupials and the ones in sheep. Initially, you do that under the microscope. They look the same. But then with the advent of molecular tools, you can compare the DNA. And um, we determined, along with other colleagues, that the parasites were identical. So it was the same as the ones that had been introduced into Australia in sheep. So we knew we were dealing with a parasite that we could control in sheep and dogs by legislation, telling farmers that they shouldn't feed their, um, their sheep dogs on home kill sheep. But you can't say you can't do that with a wildlife cycle. And so we basically in Australia now have a cycle that we we understand. Um, it does harm to the wildlife. If people um, hunt kangaroos and then feed the offal to their dogs, then they could start a, a cycle in their own domestic dogs. So it's a question of education, but it could never be eradicated. Well, why not? Uh, what happens if you cook, you know, the kangaroo meat or the organ meat? Um, you know, if you if you if you really want to feed it to your animals, what if you cook it? Will that solve yep. the problem? That break open the cysts and you know make it That's edible. So, that would solve the problem, and um, certainly with say the sheep dog cycle, um, farmers are, are encouraged one not to do it, but two if they do de- do it, or if dogs accidentally get into um, a carcass of dead sheep on pasture, then um, you know that meat that they they harvest has to be um, cooked. But really, the the bottom line message is don't do it. Well, why why say don't do it when cooking would solve it? It's you know it's like what what would a farmer do with that that waste then? Just throw it and then I mean then while I, I mean see if you're going to store it, wild animals will smell it and love to get into it. So I think that would cause wild animals to approach your encampment. And if you're yeah. going to just get rid of it, why waste it? it? It seems like that's a bad idea. It's better to cook it. Right. Okay. Well, this is uh, getting into a controversial area now. In in Australia, for example, New Zealand, many other current tr- countries that have a sh- um, that raise sheep, Middle East, for example, um, it's been shown over many years that the only way to control this um, high dated disease in domestic cycles like that is by um, education. One, do not feed your dogs on raw offal because you can say cook it but people don't cook it thoroughly and it, the parasites still get through. So the education oh, okay. campaigns that have worked have been education. And then if they don't do it, you have legislation. And in Australia, the, the end um, point was that farmers who were found to have um, infected sheep were, if they didn't um, obey the rules, then their farms were quarantined and they weren't allowed to, sh- to um, sell their sheep. Um, and so it became a domestic issue. There were some cases in Australia in the early days of the um, hydatic control campaigns where farmers were even jailed because um, they wouldn't comply. What, what do people do with the, uh, you know, the offal if they don't cook it? 
and they're supposed to get rid of it. Like, what does get rid of it mean? Where can it go where it wouldn't be a harm? And it wouldn't become well, basically, a basically, they're, they're advised not to home kill, but um, it can be buried or it can be um, theoretically boiled. When I was doing my PhD, when I, um, I did my initial education in England, and um, I did a PhD on hydatid disease in horses in the United Kingdom. And there they had a cycle, they still have, but it's not as um, frequent as it used to be, involving foxhounds and horses. It was an artificial man-made cycle involving recreational pursuit of fox hunting. And I went round to some of these fox hunts um, where they used to feed um, horse meat back to the dogs. And all these hunts had huge boilers where after um, slaughtering the horses, they were supposed to boil the meat so that any infections, not just hydatid, but other diseases, could be spread to their foxhounds. And I used to go to these places. It was a pretty, um, an interesting way to start one's PhD. These hunts, many of them in, in these days, had huge, great big boilers. And you'd see these bits of carcasses sticking out of the boilers. And there was no way on earth that those boilers were functioning correctly, um, you know, heating sure. the meat up. And so we found... Um, um, hydatid disease or the, the tapeworms to be prevalent in the foxhounds that we looked at. So which host would be the easiest one to try to, uh, you know, intervene and get rid of these parasites or, you know, stop the tapeworms? Um, you know, and they, for, and what are they called? The definitive host, I guess, is the, uh, that would be the yep. dog that eats the offal and the uh, intermediate host is, the, is where it comes from? Yep, exactly. I mean, basically, the message in, in not just hydatid disease, but most of these zoonotic type cycles is break the cycle. So number one, do the right thing and don't let the infection get into your dogs. But it can be backed up also with um, giving uh, um, drugs to the dogs. There's very, very safe and effective um, um, drugs that you can give to dogs to kill the tapeworms now. So there's a two pronged approach. Is there a temporary um, something you can add to the food? So that when if a dog does eat, you know, awful and it's contaminated, that it won't make it sick. Uh, no, not really. If you think that the dog may have been exposed, then you can prophylactically or well give the dog these um, um, worming tablets. They work very well. But there's nothing you can add to the meal to to make it literally edible, where a dog could eat contaminated no. awful and it wouldn't get sick. No one's figured no, that out. Only if it's cooked. Only if it's thoroughly cooked. Okay, well, it's too bad, you know. Um, but, you know, we've been talking, what I've been talking about there is the domestic cycle, um, but we can't do anything to prevent dingoes becoming infected um, from wallabies that they may have um, predated. So we have this artificial cycle um, in dingoes and wallabies, which contaminates the pasture that sheep may share. Huh. So it um, feeds over to the domestic cycle. Fascinating. So what's some, yeah, yeah, what, well, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, in studying the life cycles of these uh, these tapeworms, what does come to mind is an intervention. What can be done? A vaccine is another okay. oh. uh, possibility. And um, colleagues of mine at the University of Melbourne have developed an extremely effective vaccine that can be used to vaccinate sheep, for example, so that they don't get hydatid disease. Hmm. Okay. 
So I guess this tapeworm, uh, where does it reside when it goes into, you know, dogs and, and other creatures and people and, uh, and just in the gut or where does it go? In the dogs, it's um, a small tapeworm lives in the gut, doesn't cause the dogs any harm whatsoever. In the other hosts, the intermediate hosts, um, kangaroo, sheep, humans, the cysts develop in the livers and lungs and occasionally other organs, even the brain. So it can be extremely serious in um, other animals. In humans, it's probably most pathogenic and usually in humans, um, surgery is required. Oh, really? To remove the tapeworm? What, what kind of surgery? Well, surgery that would um, expose the liver or the lungs so that the surgeon can aspirate the contents of the cyst and then remove the cysts by basically cutting it out of the liver or lungs. I mean, it's, it's a pretty, pretty severe disease in people. Yeah. Huh. And there's, there's various forms of the parasite, and I haven't got time to go into all of them, but there's another one that's more common in, um, in Europe, in Central Europe, that many um, people, many um, medics regard as incurable unless it's caught pretty early. So that's a good example of a parasite that we basically have caused to spill over to wildlife. So what can be learned from um, the tapeworm's evasion of our immune system or of other creatures' immune systems? Um, you know, I'm sure it's being, being studied in, in myriad ways. I mean, what, uh, again, what can be learned from it and maybe and repurposed and used for other medicine? Gosh, that's a, a big question. I mean, you can't generalize from and say, you know, what we learn with respect to hydatid disease can be applied to other parasites, it can't. What we've learned with hydatid disease is that um, immunity is generated in the early stages of infection in the intermediate host, humans and sheep, but very quickly um, the parasite develops this cyst which walls it, walls it off from the host's immune system. So it basically sits there and um, does its own thing, sitting in its cyst. And the antibodies, um, and we know there are protective antibodies, can't get at the parasite because it's within a cyst. So the parasite has this extremely effective defense mechanism. But the cyst would have to allow the, pa- I mean, is it, is it totally dormant in the cyst stage? Or is it, Not uh, usually. You know, I mean, it would have to allow the passage of, of you know, minerals and food, et cetera. You know? Oh, yes. Yeah, but the cyst is um, an extremely complicated multi-layered structure and the parasite allows certain things into this the cyst presumably cyst materials nutrients and so on um, but antibodies can't get in there one thing that surgeons can do prior to removing a cyst the cyst is a bit like cancer that if you leave a little bit behind the parasite will regrow again this is in surgery oh, really? and what's the what surgeons can do before removing the cyst is to inject into the cyst some of the, um, the, the person's um, serum, knowing that that serum will contain antibodies that can kill the parasite before they try and remove the cyst. So there are antibodies being generated, but as with many parasites, from tapeworms through to malaria, the parasites have evolved and developed mechanisms to um, help them survive in their host. So if you remove part of a cyst, it's been determined that the remaining part will what? Regrow back into a complete uh, cyst? Yes, exactly. Wow. So in the early days in Tasmania, when I'm um, going back to when they had the um, sheepdog cycle and they were educating people about the dangers of the, um, the parasite, the most effective pictures 
that came out on the educational leaf leaflets were of little kids that had become infected and just showing the scars on their chest and abdomen and back where the surgeons had had to um, cut in to um, get rid of the cysts. And those sorts of shocking photos really helped to get the message across. Well, it seems uh, perhaps the abilities of the parasite can be harnessed, you know, for, uh, again, for other medicines. So I guess, uh, you know, I know it'd be interesting to study them to see how they do what they do. It's pretty amazing. Yep. And there are many, many parasitologists doing that throughout the world at the moment with various parasites. So what do you, uh, what is your role? What is your particular role that you are, are engaged in? How do you want to you know, make an impact? Well, my role has been, I suppose, number one has been to enthuse people and probably the, um, the greatest joy that I've had throughout my career as a, um, a professor has been a mentor and supervisor of um, research students. And so enthusing other people, young people, about parasites and um, the ways in which we can study them has been the most enjoyable part of my career, I think. Are there any uh, up-and-coming treatments for, for various parasites that you think really show a lot of promise? Or are there any breakthroughs in understanding? Um, you know, for instance, like you said, how a partial cyst could regrow to become a full one. No, not really. Um, I've just, um, with some colleagues, edited a, a large volume on hydatid disease. And there's a huge chapter in there in, on the clinical aspects um, with myriad um, ways of operating and um, that have been developed and of diagnosing using CAT scans and various other radi- radiological techniques to um, try and diagnose infections early. So I said, the vaccine has been developed, but there the big thing is getting enough money um, to allow the vaccine to be distributed and used in areas of the world where the parasite is most common, particularly in developing countries. And it's the old, old problem there of um, not having pharmaceutical companies interested in promoting the vaccine because they're not going to make enough money um, from using the vaccine in developing countries like Africa and the Middle East. Well, very good. What's, um, what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, your work and about uh, your students and everything? Where can they go? Well, um, there's a website, and I think you've already um, got that website. I saw that you'd referred to it in some of the emails I got earlier. Um, but basically, yeah, going to my university, Murdoch University, and searching myself and my other colleagues in parasitology. And, of course, the main way in which we get our message out is by publishing. So um, I published a fair few papers and books people can read and are available. Well, very good. Well, what's the name of some of the books that people can check out if they'd like? Oh, right. Well, perhaps the um, most recent I don't know one. It's for lay people or more advanced. You know, okay, well, the, bio- on, the or... biology, biology of Echinococcus and Hydatid disease. Mm-hmm. And it was most the most recent um, volumes that I mentioned. Um, it's published by um, Academic Press and Advances in Parasitology. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Andrew, thank you for coming. And again, I, I really appreciate the fact that you got up at a, a odd time to do this. So thank you so much. And uh, you've been a good guest. Thank you. Fine. My pleasure. Nice to meet you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.